Welcome to episode two in this mini-series on the Most Holy Catholic Church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All gracious and good, holy and eternal God, we ask that you illuminate our minds, that you strengthen our wills, and that in all things we give you glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last episode, we spoke about the Holy Catholic Church in terms of many of the different either attributes, for instance, it's supernatural, it's something that God has created, it's not something that is man-made, it's something that is both visible and invisible, uh, in that it is this perfect gift from God for the sake of our salvation, whereby we are all united to Christ, and our union with Christ is not something we can necessarily see. However, Christ reigning in us and through us for the world, we can see. And so the visible church we see in the Pope and the bishops and the priests and then all of the faithful as the kingdom of God is on earth by way of Christ reigning in the people. But it's also invisible in that we are united to those that are in heaven, those in purgatory, etc. We also spoke about how the church is mother. We spoke about how the church is uh, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. All of these different attributes, all of these different elements, all of these different symbols or these names, these analogies, they help us to better understand truly what this mystery is all about. And hopefully it also helps us to be more and more proud and more and more excited and more and more appreciative of the fact that we are a part of this mystery, that very much we are entwined with it in that we ourselves are the church. Today I want to speak about the four marks of the church. We should recognize, once again, the four marks are one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. We're not going to speak about all of them today. We won't get to all of them. However, in this episode, hopefully we will at least get to the first two is the goal. But I went over briefly in last episode all of these different names or analogies, body of Christ, bride of Christ, mother, etc. I want, as I go through these four marks, to begin to explain in greater depth. So first, we went over what these terms are so that we have some kind of understanding as to their meaning. Now, as we go through these four marks, hopefully one, two, three, four of these will come up and we'll be able to express a little bit further uh, about them, what they are, why they're important to us, and how they relate to us particularly. The first mark is one. The Holy Catholic Church is the only church that has these four marks, as I said. But the four marks, beginning with one, is also important to note because we speak immediately about the unity. Remember, God is always one who brings life, who brings order, who brings hierarchy, who brings unity, not division. Sin brings disharmony. Sin brings division. Sin brings destruction. Sin brings death. And so the Holy Catholic Church is one. Another reason why it's clear that Christ is the one who started it. Because if it's us, we humans that started, then the Holy Catholic Church should be destroyed by now, 2,000 years later. But in addition to this destruction, if perhaps by some crazy, unheard of chance, that even amongst us humans and our weaknesses, were able to consistently keep alive the Holy Catholic Church for 2,000 years, if this is all on our shoulders, then we should expect that the Holy Catholic Church itself should have thousands and thousands, if not millions, of divisions. And yet it doesn't. The Protestants have broken off. The Eastern Catholic, uh, Orthodox have broken off. But even then, many have come back. Even then, the, the vast majority of the numbers of Protestants break off from other Protestants, not from the Catholic Church. Uh, so this is something to recognize, the unity of the Church. But we don't just mean some kind of emotional unity. We don't just mean, well, we all have a common goal, let's love God. Because then you could mention that we're no different than any of the Protestants or the Orthodox Church, uh, Russian Orthodox, for instance, or uh, Ukrainian Orthodox or Coptic Orthodox or whatever. But rather, we are very different because Christ founded our Church. We are very different because Christ established us and he's given us the Holy Spirit to be the life and the principle of unity of the church. So that's one of the first things to note when we speak about the unity, that it's not, again, something that's natural. The fact that the Holy Catholic Church still exists and the fact that we are one is not something that is natural. 
It's something that is supernatural. And it's because of the Holy Spirit. Again, as I say, and I have already gone over briefly, the Holy Spirit is the soul of the church. The soul for a body is the principle of life, but it's also the principle of unity. Death is the moment the soul is separated from the body. But at the same time, once the soul is separated from the body, you'll notice immediately the body begins the, de the decaying process. It begins to deteriorate, fall apart. It no longer has the capability of staying together. So likewise, the soul of the church, the Holy Spirit, is this breath of God within the church, which it gives us life, which enables us to continue to pursue uh, God, to give glory to God, but at the same time to offer salvation, eternal life, the life of God, to individuals who are members of this holy church. And in addition to all of this, it is the Holy Spirit that binds us together by filling our souls with grace, by making us pieces, in a sense, of the kingdom of God, the hands and feet of the body of Christ out in the world. We are being united by God to Christ and all of those who are united to Christ. Therefore, this union of the Holy Church is only as a result of the Holy Spirit. But unity is not only something that speaks of the union that we have with each other. It, and, and with Christ. It is also a unity that we speak of in terms of our doctrine. That other churches have this ability where I really like this preacher and so I'm going to go there, but I don't really, I don't agree with him on the rapture and I don't, I, I believe in one saved, always saved, and he doesn't, but he's really good at preaching and he's, he's a nice guy and so I'm going to go to that church. And then that person may differ on uh, many different, very substantial parts of, of the faith from three different people in that pew. Whereas to be Catholic, there is what's called a deposit of faith. There are these teachings that have been passed down from Christ to the apostles and from the apostles. And with the help of sacred scripture, since the beginning, all the way down to, the, to, to this very day, this is what must be believed. To be in union with the church, to be in communion with the members of the church, this means that we not only are united to God in grace, but that we are united to each other in faith and in belief. What I profess about salvation, about faith, about grace, about Mary, about the saints, about God, about salvation, about the Holy Trinity, etc., etc., all of this is very important that I hold on to. When Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, this isn't something to take lightly, as he speaks clearly elevates the importance of truth. In fact, God becomes man so that he can give us a truth. How offensive it must be for us to ignore that and say, I can believe what I want or it's not that important. Or You know what? These scriptures, they're so easy for me to understand. I can, I can figure them out on myself. Even a child could figure out the scriptures. That's what many people say. Many Protestants believe that even children can figure out what the scriptures mean when in reality, there are thousands and thousands and thousands, I think I've heard up to... 50 to 60,000 different denominations of Protestants because the scriptures are not easy to, to understand, to decipher, to, 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 to clearly map out what exactly it is that we are to believe from them. Therefore, because we have sacred scripture and sacred tradition, which we will speak about in later episodes more fully, this enables us to be one because we understand that Christ has passed down both orally and what he has done, much has been written down as well. So in the sacred scriptures, we have certain things that are said by Christ, done by Peter and Paul and others, and then also the Old Testament, of course. But then also we have the oral tradition of the church in that we realize that Christ has preached and done many things that the apostles saw, heard, and then passed on orally, but never wrote down to be a letter in scripture. And so... How are we able to understand the scriptures? It's because we have the scriptures that are also very much supported by the oral tradition. So we can go by, so excuse me, we can go back into the history of the church and we can look at what Ignatius and what Clement and what uh, Cyril and what uh, Irenaeus and all of these early fathers believed and we can recognize, okay, the scriptures, this is kind of confusing this verse here what is it exactly that we believe about the Eucharist? For instance, many, many Christians do not believe that the Eucharist is the body, the blood, the soul, and the lineage of, the, of, of, the, of Christ. Even though he says it over and over and over again in John chapter 6. But people believe that it's a symbol regardless. 
So let us go back to the people that knew Christ or the people that knew Paul and Peter who then knew Christ or uh, not Paul, but uh, let's go back to Paul and let's go back to Irenaeus and Ignatius and Clement and Cyril and these men who sat at the feet and learned from the apostles or learned from the disciples of the apostles or learned from the disciples of the disciples of the apostles. And so we have this unbroken chain of truth being orally transmitted so that we can look back and realize that the Eucharist being the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity of, church, of, of Christ. In other words, the same tree teaching that we here and now as the Catholic Church teach in year 2020 or 19 or 8 or 21 or 30 or 2050 or whatever, we still profess the exact same thing as Peter, Paul, Bartholomew, Matthew, every apostle, and all of the disciples of those apostles that remained true in unity in truth. When we speak of the unity, therefore, we speak of Christ, who is the head. But he is the invisible head in the sense that, from our perspective, we don't see Christ. We see him in his Eucharistic presence, of course. We see the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity in the chalice at Mass, as well as on the patent, that is, that, that plate that holds the host at Mass. But... We don't see him in the same way that the apostles saw him, in the sense that they saw the shape of his nose and the color of his hair and the length of his beard. But we do see a pope. You see, a pope is another reason why we are unique, but also another reason why we are unified. Because Christ is the, is the invisible head of the church, but the pope is the visible head of the church. As Christ passed on his authority and gave the keys to Peter, well, Peter, in, a, in essence, those, those keys, I should say, pass from Peter onto the next Pope, and onto the next Pope, and onto the next Pope, all the way to the Pope that we have to this day. This has happened as a result of sacred tradition within the Church. So this authority that Christ has established has been passed down. He clearly elevated Peter above the other apostles to be the visible head, that he was the leader, in essence, of them. And so he is the rock upon which the church is built. Likewise, the unity of the church is very much seen in the fact that we have one leader. We don't have a democracy within the church. We can't change our teachings by getting a bunch of Catholics together and voting as to what we should believe. We believe what has been passed down, and the Pope is the one who is supposed to protect that and help to further apply that into our modern day and age. So we have a Pope. We have this supernatural bond and unity to Christ by grace that unites us to all of those that are members of Christ. We also see in sacred scripture, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, about the body of Christ, that it is a significant understanding in understanding what the church is. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of the body, whereas they are many, yet are one body. So also is Christ. For in one spirit were we all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, whether bond or free, whether in one spirit we have all been made to drink. For the one body also is not one member, but many. So we are mem many members, but we are one body, the body of Christ. So this mystical body of Christ is very beautiful in terms of our understanding how united Christ wants to be in, our, in terms of our understanding of the intimacy that Christ seeks with each of us, but that he seeks that each of us have with each other member of the body of Christ. As soon as we are baptized, we are given entrance into our Holy Mother Church gives birth to us, not only in the family of God, but what that means in that God dwells within us is that we are then entering into, as living members, the Holy Catholic Church. So we become living members of the Holy Catholic Church, which is how we're united to Christ and thereby united to the Father and the Holy Spirit, and thereby also filled with the life of God, eternal life. That is what the life of God is. It is the, the very life that God lives. That is the life that he desires to share with us, a life that does not end. Now, the body of Christ, many members, but this union, this community is not one that is overcome by death. It's one that stretches beyond death. And therefore, as we speak of the body of Christ, 
we are speaking of Christ as the visible, invisible head, I should say, sorry. We, should, we are speaking of the Pope as the visible head. We are speaking of the hierarchy that we find, but we are also speaking of the saints, and we are speaking of those in purgatory, and all of what's called the communion of saints, which we will get to as we cover our next mark here in just a few moments. But, once again, the body of Christ, in that we are unified, and that source of unity is the Holy Spirit working in the church. And the church is united to Christ. Remember, as we are called the bride of Christ, remember it is the woman and the man that become one flesh. We see this all the way back in the book of Genesis. And from this, then offspring comes, life comes. Well, likewise, our unity is because of who Christ is. He is the invisible head. We, the body, are one. We are united to him. And as the bride of Christ, in a sense, another analogy that helps us to understand that intimate union that Christ seeks with all of us, his body. So we see the unity emphasized in that the church is the bride of Christ, and the bride becomes one with the, with the groom. But then also the unity is emphasized in the sense that we're speaking of one body, one head. One body, one head. It is Christ that directs us, Christ that lives within us, Christ that, uh, that, that uses us as an instrument, just like the head is the one that tells the hand what to do, tells the feet when to walk, tells the tongue what to say, or what movements to make in order to say certain words. So the head is absolutely essential for the unity of the body. As well, clearly, Christ is absolutely essential for the sake of the unity of the church. And it is the Holy Spirit that is that principle of unity binding us to him and with him and in him. We also see another scripture passage that speaks of this uh, intimate union. As Christ says that I am the vine, you are the branches. That we are so in line with him, in union with him, that we grow out of him in a sense, that he is the root, he is the establishment, he is the necessary uh, cornerstone, as it is also, as he is also called in the scriptures, but we grow from him in our union with him, and as we are united to him, we have life, we bear fruit, we are able to continue to grow out as the branches in order to move out towards the nations and bring other people towards God. Likewise, this unity, specifically in the body of Christ, it's one that speaks of great volumes in terms of how God elevates us, even amongst our own differences. We shouldn't believe that we're all the same. I don't mean to suggest that. But what we see when St. Paul says Jew or Gentile, bond meaning slave or free, man or woman, any of these, right, we're all equal in that we are in union with God, and therefore God has elevated us all above even the most powerful king on earth. If he is not in the state of grace, then in other words, if he is not a living member of the family of God, a living member of the Holy Church, then he is greatly surpassed by even the lowliest of Christians who is in the state of grace. Because that life that is what binds us together, that working of the Holy Spirit and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit within each person that is in grace, that is something that elevates us to a supernatural level. So this unity that we have with Christ, it's because Christ dwells within. It's because God lives within and shares his very life with us. And all of this life and this dwelling in, this is supernatural. It's above our nature. It's something that is greater than us and it's something that lifts and elevates us beyond. So, we can speak of Jew and we can speak of Gentile and we can speak of slave and we can speak of free that we should understand that we are all elevated and united in Christ. It doesn't matter our past. It doesn't matter how many people we've murdered. Like St. Paul very likely was a murderer, but certainly a persecutor of Christians before he became the Paul that we know, the Paul that wrote the scriptures, the Paul that traveled incessantly in order to preach the, the, the holy news of Christ crucified and Christ risen. So we have unity, we have this community, but we also can see this analogy of the Old Testament pointing to this reality. Because in the Old Testament, we have 12 sons of Jacob. 12 sons of Jacob, that is, 12 uh, tribes that these 12 sons become. In some ways, it actually wasn't that each of those sons had their own tribe, uh, but if you look at Joseph, who had two sons, and all of this mixing together, in a sense, regardless, 12 tribes are the foundation upon which uh, the, the nation of Israel is built. 
So these, this family becomes this nation, which, excuse me, this family becomes a tribe, the tribe of Abraham. And then eventually Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons. And then from these 12 sons or their offsprings, at least comes 12 tribes. So we have a, a, a family. We have the family grow into a tribe. We have the tribe grow into uh, 12 tribes, a community, a vast community, and then these 12 tribes into a nation, and this nation eventually into a kingdom with King David. So over and over again, we see that God is kind of uh, expanding out by a covenant relationship, by binding himself, by swearing himself to the people of Israel, as well the people of Israel binding themselves back to God then we see that there's this growing number of people that God has chosen for the sake of salvation. And once we get to Christ, Christ also covenants himself. In other words, gives himself, unites himself to the people of God. But now the people of God are not just those descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel, but now to all the Gentiles, to all the nations, go out and baptize uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to all people. So Christ opens salvation to all. He says, I want all who choose me, all who receive my mercy, my blood, my salvation, all who repent and remain faithful. I want all of them to be united to me. I want to elevate each of them. I want to fill each of them with my divine life. So that's what Christ offers us in this unity that we find in the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Therefore, when we speak of the oneness, we speak of the body of Christ. We also speak of the principle of unity as the Holy Spirit who dwells within. We speak of, as I said, the Pope who is the visible head, who in a sense points to Christ as the invisible, the true, the ultimate head of the church. We also speak of John chapter 17, where we find Christ praying that they may be one. They may be one. Christ is praying for his apostles, but he's also praying for all of the disciples that they be one, that there be not division, that there be not discord and disharmony, destruction and even death, but rather that all might remain firm to what Christ has passed on, to the truths that he has given, to the life that he offers, to the salvation that he has uh, made possible for each by way of the church. So Christ even prays that all may be one, demonstrating how important it is that the church that Christ built remains one church and not splintered out, broken, and divided in countless different ways. The second mark of the church, holy. To be holy is to be set apart. We need to remember what that, that, that word means because we say it often, but we don't give consideration to what it actually means. And just on a practical level, it means to be set apart. This is why we see how God established these covenant relations, right? So let us do this just very briefly because this is an important part. I want to expound a little bit on what I was just speaking about is God chose a family and then he chose a tribe and then he chose many tribes, etc. That a covenant relationship is where God swears to man and man swears to God. In a sense, it's not just a contract, but it definitely includes a contract, right? A contract is where I say, I'm going to do X and you're going to do or give me Y. I'll fix your toilet and then you pay me $400, right? That's a contract, okay? I do this, you do that. We both have to follow and abide by what we said. A covenant includes that. There are these kind of terms in a covenant, but a covenant is much more than a contract in that it also has to do with two becoming one. So in a contract, there is an exchange of goods. In a covenant, there is an exchange of persons. I become your family. You become my family. Give consideration to marriage. When a woman of a different family and a man of a different family come together and form one family, a blood bond, one that is forever, not ever, is that to be broken until death. Well, likewise, that's a covenant relationship. God is saying, I choose you. You abide by these commands. I will give you all of the blessings. I will give you salvation. I will set you apart from every nation. I will give you my own holiness, my own set-apartness. I will fill you with glories, with reward, but also with my own life. 
That's what God is giving in the covenant relationships. If we go back to the Old Testament, we see over and over again many covenant relationships. There's a covenant relationship made at creation. In fact, the seventh day when God rests, that's seven. That is a number that in Hebrew means oath. That word itself means oath. And so God swears himself to creation. He swears himself that what I have made, this is good. This is not to be arbitrarily destroyed. It's not to be forgotten. It's not for me to abandon and to leave. But rather, I swear myself that as long as this creation abides by me, then I abide by it, in a sense. And then what do we have? Adam and Eve, they sin. They break the covenant. They destroy what God has given them. And in doing so, they also cause death and suffering and hunger and pain and all kinds of difficulties and division among creatures and animals and everything into the world. But then God, in his great mercy, says, I establish another covenant. And so he takes Noah, this just man, amongst all of these other people, he finds one man with a family. He finds one family, in essence. And he establishes a new covenant relationship. This is where we get the, the rainbow. It's a sign after the flood. It's a sign of God's covenant. I bind myself to creation, and I will no longer destroy this with, uh, with water, excuse me, with a flood. But he binds himself specifically to that family of Noah. This just man and his family, this is where he's going to give countless blessings as long as they remain in his, in his covenant, in his relationship, in this beautiful binding, swearing of each other to each other. And then man breaks it. In fact, almost immediately, Noah gets drunk, he becomes naked, his son sees him, all of this weird stuff occurs, right? So then... The relationship is broken again, and it continues to be broken through the sins of Ham and others. And then God gives, once again, another chance in his great love and mercy to creation. In this chance, we see that it is Abraham who is then elevated, chosen, not just to be a family, but to be, in fact, an entire tribe. And so we have the tribe of Abraham, who was ahead of many different people in this tribe, and he is blessed, and a covenant is made by him and God, specifically because of how he obeys his covenant relationship, right? God has already told him that he will be the father of many nations, but then God asks him, go kill your only uh, truly and, and, and legitimately begotten son, Isaac. Abraham obeys. Abraham already knows God has promised that I will be the father of many, as numerous as the stars are in the sky, as numerous as the, the grains of sand on the seashore, I will be the father of many. So if I kill my only offspring, even then I know God will be faithful. That's the faith, that's the trust that Abraham has in God, in his promises, in that God is good, not a deceitful God. And therefore, he's willing to sacrifice his only son. God prevents this from occurring. God lavishes blessings upon him. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And then all of a sudden, we have this great multitude of people. But in these 12 sons, we see a nation grow. And there's another covenant that is started with Moses. Moses takes out of slavery the 12 tribes of Israel. And then, eventually, they want a kingdom. After they break and sin over and over again, uh, the, the covenant that God has established with Moses, then there's another covenant established with King David. And then this nation becomes a kingdom and a powerful kingdom that actually destroys many different people and kings. And then still the Israelites break the covenant relationship with God. And others say there's another, relation, another covenant relationship that was established with the prophets. Others say, no, there's not. Whatever, doesn't matter for this class. So then we move to Christ, who establishes a new and everlasting covenant. A new and everlasting covenant relationship. And how does he do so? By the church, in the church, with the church. See, that's why it's important that we're one. That's why we are one. We are holy. We are Catholic. We are apostolic. Because Christ has established a new and everlasting covenant by shedding his own blood, by being the sacrificial lamb for us. And he pours out the blessings of that on the church. So we have moved from being the, this creation covenant in general to being an individual family, then tribe, then from tribe nation, then from nation kingdom to then 
church, where we are a family, the family of God, where we are a tribe in a sense, and that we are all united in Christ, where we are a body of Christ, where we are also a, a, a kingdom in that Christ reigns within us and therefore reigns all. And then we are a nation in, the, in that we are the new Jerusalem. This is another term of the church because we see that Jerusalem was the pride of Israel. It was where King David remained. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was, at least uh, at one point. And it was the city of great glory because that was where the temple was. In other words, that was where God was worshipped properly. And so the church, the Catholic church, we see all the way in the book of Revelation, the last book of the scriptures, where we're talking about a new Jerusalem. And this new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, adorned and decked with beauty and truths and glory that come from Christ, the groom. And that this church is where God is worshipped properly. Why? Because we are united and perfected in Christ and by Christ as the church. The church is perfect by Christ, not by us. We are imperfect individually, but the church is made perfect by Christ, a perfect, uh, excuse me, the, uh, a perfect bride for the groom, for the Lamb of God. Holy, all of everything that I just said, speaks of why we say that we are set apart. Because in that family, and then in that tribe, and then in that nation, and in that kingdom, and then in the church, it is God setting apart from all other humans. He's saying that I am giving you something special. You will abide by these laws. You will abide by these commands. And you will be visibly different from everybody else. You see, the Jews, they couldn't, uh, what is it, eat lamb that was cooked in its own mother's milk. They couldn't eat pig. They couldn't eat shellfish. These kinds of restrictions, they separated themselves. Why with these restrictions from every other nation. But likewise, they also had the Ten Commandments that made them a good and just society that separated them from the other nations. So God gives them these different laws and he in, in fact adds to them and then he gives them the proper form of worship that I want you to worship me in this way. And all of these things set apart the Israelites from all of the other nations around. They were set apart. They were made holy because they obeyed what God desired and they lived that out rather than doing what every other nation does or living by their own schemes because there were many nations they were sacrificing humans to gods in fact that was a very common thing there was other nations with priestesses it was very normal to have women priests whereas the jewish religion only always had male priests as a result of what god desired and then likewise we see other nations they would not only sacrifice humans but they would sacrifice infants as well to gods the Israelites would not do this. This was a course against the, 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 the Jewish religion. So all of these things set them apart. They were holy because they were set apart by God, by his command, by his desire, and also by what he offered them and gave them in blessings and other ways. So likewise, the church, all of the living members of the church, they're set apart by this supernatural grace that elevates us, binds us to Christ, unites us, and has God's life and God himself live within each individual member that is united in this church, that is in this community. So we are set apart, this church. The bride of Christ is sanctified and made holy. Another reason why we call the church the bride of Christ, and in fact, we could even say that she's also the new Eve, in a sense. The reason is because Christ conceives the church by the shedding of his blood and water. I should say perhaps that it is God, who conceives the church in the second person of the Holy Trinity, in Jesus Christ, as he climbs up on that cross, as he goes to sleep, the sleep of death, for three days, right? His side is opened by a spear, and blood and water pour out of his side. Why this is important is because we know from what St. Paul has said and made so clear, that Christ is the new Adam. All sin comes into the world through one man. All salvation is offered to all humans by way of one man, Christ. You see, what Adam did in his disobedience, Christ undid and made holy in his obedience. Adam took from a tree that fruit and in consuming it, disobeyed God and destroyed creation 
and broke our nature, casting it down, becoming a fallen nature. Christ takes on this fallen nature and sanctifies it because he is God and then takes on this second nature and he unites humanity, human nature, with his divinity in his one divine person. That's what Jesus does, the second person of the divine trinity. And in doing so, he reestablishes the union between man and God that Christ, I mean, excuse me, that Adam broke. So he's the new Adam. But he's the Adam that does what he's supposed to, follows the will of the Father, says, not my will, but yours be done. Rather, Adam said, my will be done, not yours. And Christ dies on a tree. Adam took from a tree. Christ gave his blood to the tree. He becomes the very fruit of life so that we can pluck the fruit of that tree at Mass and receive the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity of our Lord and the grace and the life that comes with it. So all of that to say, how did Eve get created by God? By Adam going to sleep and from his side, Eve is created. A rib is taken from the side of Adam and therefore this woman is created. We have Christ who slumbers for three days in the sleep of death. And as Christ is dead, a spear goes through his side and blood and water pour out. And this blood and water is the church. Why? Because we have in the blood and water baptism, the first of the seven sacraments. We cannot receive any of the other seven sacraments without receiving baptism first. How do we get into the family of God? How do we get holy and set apart? How do we enter into this unity that Christ has established through the Holy Spirit? By way of baptism. So the waters of baptism are the waters that poured out of the side of Christ. That is the first of the sacraments. The greatest of the sacraments is Holy Communion. The body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Christ. Because I enter into Christ through baptism. I receive the, the mercy of Christ and, and am more united to him in the sacrament of, re, of reconciliation. I receive a, a, a greater bestowal, a greater gift of the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit at the moment of confirmation, and I am confirmed in that body of Christ. I become a stronger member in it, in essence. So we have all of these sacraments, as I'm explaining, that help us to be further united to Christ, but in the Eucharist, we have Christ himself. When we receive the Eucharist, we are not receiving this greater form of unity through the grace. We are receiving the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Christ himself. And so it is the greatest of the seven sacraments. It is the pinnacle of our church and our life uh, here on earth. And therefore, in this water, sacred water pouring from the side of Christ, we have the birth of, the, excuse me, we have the, the, uh, the, the first of the seven sacraments, and we have the height of the seven sacraments. In other words, we have the beginning and the end of all of our faith, of what we are, of our union with God in the seven sacraments. And so the water and the blood, this most precious water and blood, is what uh, concludes all that is within it as well, which means the other five sacraments and all of the blessings of the church and all of this. So God conceives the church from the sight of Christ, set apart, but also the bride of Christ, Eve, in a sense, the new Eve. Now, what does that mean? Because don't we often call Mary the new Eve? Isn't Mary also considered the, the new Eve in that where Eve became this, this temptress to Adam, she brought this forbidden fruit to Adam. The Blessed Virgin gave her entire self in obedience and humility to God and was used as an instrument by way of salvation coming into the world. She gave her entire body to Jesus so that from her body he can take his humanity. Very different. Our salvation comes because of the way that Mary cooperated with the new Adam. Eve, our, our damnation, our condemnation, our destruction, our death comes about because of the original Eve, who does not cooperate in the way that she does, she should, who did not serve and help Adam, but rather led him towards temptation and sin. So, yes, Mary is the new Eve. But we should also recognize that the church is a type of new Eve as well because it is the church that is born from the side of Christ. Christ going to sleep as Adam went to sleep in a deep sleep, it says, I believe. So, the bride of Christ, the Holy Church, understand that is a beautiful image. That Christ wants you, desires you, thirsts, as he says, for you so much 
that he's willing to undergo this deep sleep of death so that we, the church, can be conceived out of his side, the blood and the water that are so necessary for our salvation, the cleansing of our souls. As we speak of the bride of Christ, we all and the, the church in general, and all of those things that fall under this mark of holiness, we must also include the communion of saints. The communion of saints. So, as we speak of the communion of saints, we need to understand we are not speaking of only those canonized saints. So when we hear saint, we think Saint Augustine, Saint Francis, Saint Dominic, Saint Paul, Saint Peter, etc. Which is good in that what that word means, the word saint, means holy. It comes from the Latin word meaning sanctus. Sanctus means holy. So in essence, what we're saying is holy Jerome, holy Augustine, holy Peter, holy Paul. But they're not the only ones that are holy. They're not the other, only ones, in other words, that are set apart. Why are we set apart? How are we set apart? Because it is the Holy Spirit that enters into and dwells within the soul of those who receive baptism and who have confessed every mortal sin in the sacrament of confession. In other words, everyone who is in the state of grace. And remember, I know I keep using some of these terms of, about grace and other things that I do further explain in a mini-series down the line. So please bear with me that when I speak about grace, I'm speaking about our unity with God and the capability that I have of having his life within me. If I am in the grace of God, then I also have his life within me, and I also have God dwelling within me. If I am not in the grace of God, then I am outside of uh, the church, and that I am not a living member of the family of God, and I am not a living member of the church, because I have cast myself out by way of what's called mortal sin, something else we also cover in the miniseries on grace. So, communion of saints is not just speaking of the canonized saints. Canonized saint means the ones that the church has investigated meticulously the lives of various men and women and evaluated their lives to be so heroically virtuous in the way in which they live that we know that these people are in heaven and the church canonizes them as people to imitate because they imitated Christ so well. People that are in heaven and therefore we are able to, as a whole church, pray to them and ask for their blessings and their help so that they bring us closer to God. We're not praying to them as if they are God. We're not worshiping them as if somehow they're greater than humanity, they're greater than, than God himself or greater than uh, any other human person. But rather, we are recognizing that the greatness that they have is because of the way in which God has worked in them, has used them as an instrument, and they have said yes. They have cooperated with the grace of God over and over and over again, day in and day out in their life. They say, not my will, but yours be done. And as a result, then the church says they are in heaven. They are clearly in heaven. Their life is such that they are in heaven, that they have not even gone to purgatory because they have paid all of the price that was necessary, the way in which they lived heroically this life. And therefore, they are in heaven, and we can ask them for their intercessory prayers. Again, a big word meaning to go between. That we ask them to bring us closer to God through their prayers. Just as if you would ask your mother or your brother or sister to pray for you, we ask these saints to pray for us. However, those are canonized saints. That is different. When you hear me use the term communion of saints, and you will hear me use this term often because it's such a beautiful teaching of our faith. It's one we need to understand and believe well. I am speaking of three different levels of saints, or three different groupings of saints, perhaps is a better way to state that. There is the church militant, the church suffering, and the church triumphant. The communion of saints speaks of all the people that are holy. How are we holy? Not by my own efforts, not by what I do. I am holy by way of having the grace and life of God dwelling within me. So if I am in the state of grace, I am holy, sanctified by God, not, again, by me and my own merits, my own actions, like I pull myself up from my own bootstraps, I make myself holy, but rather it is by me cooperating with the grace of God and God dwelling within me. That's how I am holy. Well, it's not just the canonized saints like St. Augustine and St. Paul that are in heaven. They're not the only ones that have God dwelling within them. As I said, baptism is the way in which we are put into the union of the church. 
Which means that is the moment in which the Holy Spirit enters into our souls, fills us with this grace necessary, as well gives us so many of the other gifts that bind us to Christ and help us to imitate Christ. We are directly united to Christ and living members of the family of God and living members of the Holy Church at the moment of baptism. As long as we are in the state of grace, we are in the communion of saints because God is holy and he is dwelling within. So the church militant is the first group. That speaks of those who are still fighting. Militant, think military. We're still fighting for our salvation. We can still be tempted by the devil. We can still be taken away by our own poor choices out of the church, out of unity and holiness uh, of, of, with, with Christ. And that is done by way of sin, specifically mortal sin. In mortal sin, I rid myself of the grace of God. I rid myself of the life of God. I rid myself of unity and of holiness with Christ and in Christ. Therefore, the church militant are those that are here on earth. Because the people in heaven, they can't lose their salvation. The people in hell, they've already lost their salvation. The people in purgatory, they can't lose their salvation either. They'll eventually go into heaven. They're just not there yet. But here on earth, we can still lose our salvation. So, we are the church militant. We're still fighting. We still must remain faithful, repent of our sins, and follow Christ every day. But we are saints. We are saints here and now, already. We are already living the life of God because his life is within me if I am in the state of grace. Always stay close to the sacraments because that's how we're in the state of grace. Secondly, church suffering. The suffering are those that are in purgatory. Every person in purgatory, and I will speak much more on purgatory again in the miniseries on grace, but much more do I speak, uh, excuse me, but the, the souls in purgatory are very much saints in that they died in the grace of God, which means that they will continue to live forever in God. But they're not perfectly purged of everything that is not of God yet. Only the perfect enter into heaven and therefore, purgatory for those that died in the grace of God, with God living within them, will go to heaven. But not necessarily directly if there are still things in which they need to be purged, from which they need to be purged. So the church suffering speak of those that are in purgatory. This is why don't let any priest or anybody else tell you to stop praying for those loved ones of yours that have passed from this life. Keep praying for them because they very well may be in purgatory which means that we are still in communion with them. That's powerful. That means that although if my dad is a Christian or my mom is a Christian and one of them passes on, my relationship with them is not done if I'm in the state of grace and they died in the state of grace. In fact, that's going to continue on for as long as I remain in the state of grace. So if I die in the state of grace, we will be united in Christ forever after. But they may not yet be fully perfect and able, into, and able to enter into heaven, and therefore, they would be suffering greatly, intensely, in purgatory. But at the same time that their suffering is so great, their joy is also greater than our own joy here on earth, and ecstatic because they realize that at every moment or every passing uh, purge that, 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 that they are undergoing, that they are growing closer and closer to being in perfect whole, entire, most precious union with God forever in heaven. So, we are the church militant still fighting. Those that are in grace, that is. The church suffering are those that died in grace and still uh, are not yet in heaven. And then the third is the church triumphant. That every person that has entered into the glories of heaven, they no longer have grace because they now have received the glory that grace has been transferred into glory for them. So what they have is this glory that cannot and will not ever be taken from them. And they are in heaven, united to all the others that are suffering, all the others that are church militant. In the book of Revelation, we speak of a right-robed army. We speak of an army of people that have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. We are speaking of those that are in heaven. And we are speaking of them because we are still united to them. Why is it that I can pray for the souls in purgatory? Why is it that, at least most theologians say, the souls in purgatory can pray for us? Why is it that the people that are in heaven, I can ask for their sin, or for their sin, I can ask for their prayers? 
The reason is because we are united, we are in communion with the saints, because I'm in grace, then I'm united to all the others that are in grace or in glory in Christ. All of those that are in glory are those that are in heaven. All of those that are in grace are us, the church militant, and the church suffering are united either by grace or by glory. To be honest, I'm not quite sure if the grace uh, still maintain, is, is there until they enter into glory, which I believe is the case, but I'm not positive. But regardless, realize that as long as we are in the state of grace, we are united to all those that are in purgatory and all those that are in heaven. So the communion of saints is the communion of all of those that are in purgatory, earth, and heaven, uh, but those that are in grace in, on earth. I mention that and why I say this is so beautiful is one, because it should help us greatly as we confront the tragedies of loss of loved ones in our own life. That we should continue to pray for them. We shouldn't just assume, oh, they're in a better place. We don't know that. We hope they are. Of course we hope they are. We always have hope in Christ who is the foundation of our hope. But with recognition that it is possible that they're in purgatory, we should love them enough in realizing that we're still able to benefit them by praying for them consistently and daily as we continue to pray for all of our brothers and sisters that are in purgatory, meaning all of those that are in purgatory, because it is Christ that unites us. You see, we are the body of Christ, and so some members are the hands, some members are the feet, some members are the arms, the eyes, etc. Well, likewise, some members are on earth still fighting, some members are in purgatory, some members are in heaven, but we're all united, and we're all rooting for each other. So we need the saints to help us from heaven. We need those in purgatory to pray for us, and they need our prayers because we can benefit them greatly with our prayers. They cannot benefit themselves, I believe, with their own prayers, but we can benefit them greatly with our sacrifices and almsgivings and prayers and other things. The communion of saints. This means that not even death is able to separate the unity, the oneness, of the body of Christ. Not even death can separate us. This is why we hear, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Because it has none in the face of Christ. It has none united to his blood, uh, united to him through his most precious blood and his most precious water that flows from his side. This is the holy church. This is the one church. Revelation chapter 7, 9 and 14. After this, I saw a great multitude which no man could, member, could number, of all the nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and in sight of the Lamb, clothed with white robes and psalms in their hands. These are they who are come out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Then in addition to this, we also have Ephesians. As I said, we're speaking about the Holy Church, which is the Bride of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 25, it says, Quote, let women be subject to their husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the body of Christ. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so also let the wives be to their husbands in all things. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it. So we see Christ loves the church. Christ establishes a covenant relationship with the church. Christ gives himself for the church. Christ is the one who finds, founded the church, in a sense, in that from his body, from his side, blood and water flowed. Therefore, we are one, and therefore we are holy. The church is also holy because it is the church who is the one who offers the sacraments. Eve is the mother of all humans. It is the Holy Mother Church, who is the mother of all Christians. Well, I thought Mary was the mother of all Christians. Yes, she is. We will get to that in one second. But again, Holy Mother Church is rightly called the mother of all Christians. And the reason why is because she is the one who has been given the task of making holy the world by way of the sacraments, by way of her blessings, by way of being the steward of the merits of Christ, by way of all of these graces that flow through her to the world, she is the one who gives birth to every Christian through baptism, and therefore it is Holy Mother Church, rightly called, that is holy, 
because the sacraments come from her to the people. And so we look to our Holy Mother to give us these sacraments and are only given to her by Christ himself and what he has done in establishing them in his own life. All of the seven sacraments were established by Christ himself. Christ himself established the seven sacraments and gave them to the apostles for the sake of passing them forward and on. And therefore we have, as the Israelites, that kingdom eventually, that kingdom is built on 12 tribes. We have the 12 apostles upon which this one holy Catholic and apostolic church is built. Revelation 19, 7 through 9 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath prepared herself, and it is granted to her that she should clothe herself with fine linen, glittering and white. For the fine linen are the justifications of the saints. Again. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are they that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith to me, These words of God are true. Yes. The sacraments are given to us. The priest holds the Eucharist up at Mass and he says, Blessed are those who are called the supper of the feast of the Lamb. This is the Lamb of God. Who is the Lamb? Christ. Christ is the Lamb. Who is the bride? The church. Therefore, what we celebrate in heaven is a marriage feast, a covenant, a new and everlasting covenant whereby we, the bride, are bound forever in glory to the groom, who is Christ, all because of what he has done in establishing the church and in his death in making sure that we have all of the graces necessary, the blood, the water, the sacrament of confession, and everything else for all of the sacraments and all of the blessings and all of the merits that flow through the church. The church is holy. As I keep saying, well, Mary's the new Eve, so how can we say the church is? Or Mary is the mother of all Christians. She is the queen, so how can we say that the bride, the church is? The reason is because Mary is an image of the church. In other words, where Mary is, the church is going, is following. Remember, she is mother and virgin. She is perfect. She is immaculately conceived. Well, so the church is conceived from the sight of Christ, who is perfect, obviously. The church is conceived immaculately. Secondly, it is the church who is both mother and virgin. You see, mother, this means life giver. Well, Mary, of course, does this. Mary actually gives a body, human nature, to the life, the life giver ultimate. She gives human nature to God, but she also bears, she also gives birth to God himself, salvation in a sense. Well, Holy Mother Church is the one who offers us the sacraments, and what do we receive in the sacraments? The water that pours from Christ's side, the blood that pours from Christ's side, the mercy of God, the love of God, etc. So we receive Christ in essence, and especially, particularly, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, we receive Christ. So the Holy Mother Church gives birth to Christ into people that are then baptized, that are then receiving Holy Communion and reconciliation in all of these sacraments. So we see that the church is bearing life, giving birth to life, but at the same time giving uh, salvation into the, by, by admitting Christians into the family of God by way of uh, giving birth to them through the sacraments. And in addition to all of this, we also should recognize that a virgin is one who is in anticipation, and a virgin is one who is generally, at least virginity is an image of purity, and virginity is also an image of complete self-gift, in other words, a person that is a virgin is somebody that is waiting for the one in anticipation for the spouse, right? So in the same way, we see that the Blessed Virgin, she is both mother in that she is the mother of God, but she is also virgin in that she is pure and immaculate and she knows not man in the way that every other woman who has given birth knows man. Therefore, we see that she is completely God's in her virginity that she is completely given over to him. And at the same time, she is waiting in great anticipation for the coming of the Messiah at, at her earthly life. She is waiting in anticipation as all of the good Israelites were, were to do, or at least the good Jews at the time were to do, was waiting in anticipation for the Messiah. Well, likewise, we see that Holy Mother Church 
We are entirely devoted to God. That Holy Mother Church is established by God for the sake of being God's entirely. And therefore, we, by the grace of God, are working towards that by purging ourselves of everything that is not of him, of all of the attachments we have to this life and everything else, so that we can belong entirely to God. So that is the idea of virginity and that anticipation of the wedding feast that takes place in heaven alone, the perfection of everything that God has, has, has begun in history and in time through uh, establishing the church and teaching and preaching for three years in his public ministry and all of this. But we belong to him entirely. So the church is both mother and virgin. The Blessed Virgin is both mother and virgin and perfect and immaculate and holy. And the church is purified and perfected by Christ we, yes, in our weakness, are sinners, but the Holy Mother Church, that is something that God himself has established for the sake of being perfect and for the sake of being a, a means of salvation for all of us. So, once again, we speak of one and we speak of holy for many different reasons as I have just covered, but we are, the church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the mother of all Christians. And when we speak of the church, we are certainly including what we mean is the communion of saints. Although we mean more than the communion of saints, because when we speak of the church, we speak of authority, and we speak of sacred tradition, and sacred scripture, and all of these things, but we are certainly as well speaking of the communion of saints. Why? Because we are the church, and we are set apart. We are made holy by God himself, by our union, by being one with Christ. May the Lord bless you. I hope this was not overwhelmingly confusing or too much, but rather may this aid you in better loving, serving, and being a true and holy member of the church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and may God richly bless all who watch these videos.